So let's dive into probably one of the greatest chapters in the book of Acts, and arguably one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. And I don't say that um, haphazardly. I don't use, uh, what's that word, Uh, hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating to make a point. This is an incredible chapter, particularly Paul's sermon in Athens. It's a masterpiece. And this whole chapter is uh, a literary masterpiece, obviously because of the one who inspired it, the Holy Spirit, but also uh, Dr. Luke did a great job listening to the Holy Spirit and uh, penned a beautiful chapter. So let's start with the handout and the summary of the chapter, and then we'll go to the text and we'll go verse by verse through chapter 17 and pull out from it what it says for us today. So chapter 17 of the book of Acts describes Paul's second missionary journey, which you'll recall started in the previous chapter with Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, heading out to check on the churches they planted during Paul's first missionary journey. So they headed on their second missionary journey where um, Paul and Silas travel through Galatia, which is modern-day Asia Minor. You probably know it as Turkey. Visiting the churches Paul and Barnabas established on their first journey, they found a young man named Timothy and brought him along. The chapter describes Paul preaching in Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. In Athens, Paul addressed the Areopagus, and he speaks of the unknown God, and also, and this is key, he speaks of the resurrection of Christ to the Greeks. He tells them that God is the creator of all things and that he is not far from any of us. Some people believe the preaching of Paul, but others do not. And then from here, uh, from Athens, Paul moves on to Corinth, which is um, a modern-day, or I guess you could call it, it was the Sodom and Gomorrah of its time and possibly the Las Vegas of our time, the city of Corinth, uh, Sin City. And in this church, of course, Paul plants what I affectionately call the messed-up church. Uh, there's a good reason why it's messed up. It's in, the, it's in the seed of Satan, if you will. So the chapter also mentions an interesting uh, thing that transpires, and that is that some of the Jews were not persuaded by Paul's preaching, but became envious of both his preaching and his influence. And so they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and set the city in an uproar in Thessalonica. <laughs> The charge against Paul was that he was saying there was another king. And so we talked last week about the uh, unauthorized deity that they were accused of uh, preaching. Remember that demon-possessed girl? She was saying that they were ministers of the Most High God, and that possessed girl's owners accused Paul and Silas of preaching 
an unauthorized deity. The really, or the only real authorized deity in the Roman Empire was Caesar himself. And so these people in Thessalonica, which was a Roman colony, well, they accused Paul of saying that there was another king. And, and just by way of reminder, remember when, when uh, Pilate said to the people when Jesus was on trial, shall I crucify your king? And the high priest said, we have no king but Caesar. They had bought into the Caesar cult. And so Paul is preaching a very radical message here. And sometimes that's lost on us because we say Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords all the time and we, there's no threat for saying that, at least yet. But in Paul's day, yeah, there was a big threat of saying that there was another king. And this accusation troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city in Thessalonica. So let's dive right into the text and we'll read a few verses and go back and forth from the text to the handout. Uh, verses 1 to 9. Now when they, in, when they had passed through Amphopolis, yeah, that's close. Amphipolis, there we go. Thanks, Ralph. You're a Greek scholar. Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, Paul always started his preaching in the synagogues. That was his practice up until this point. We'll see by the end of this chapter that he is no longer going to start his preaching in the synagogues. And so even though he was apostle to the Gentiles, he used preaching in the synagogues as a springboard into uh, the city. He went where he was likely going to be most accepted, and that is in the synagogue of the Jews. And there he would begin his preaching and go out from there. And so that was his custom. Verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and he went so for three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he reasoned with the other Jews that were in uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia. And he reasoned with them there from the Scriptures. And what did he reason? What did he preach? Well, he explained and he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So this is language that the Jewish audience was very familiar with and understood. And so... Paul reasoned with them. He explained to them that the Messiah for whom they were waiting must suffer. I mean, it bears repeating, but I know that you know this. They were not expecting, expecting a suffering Savior. They were expecting a conquering king. But Paul goes into this Jewish synagogue and he explains to them that the Messiah was to suffer. But not just suffer and die, but also rise from the dead. The resurrection is a central point of Paul's preaching. It's a central point in every sermon that we've read to this point. It's something that we as followers of Christ to this very day need to make central in our lives and in our uh, 
speaking to others that Christ not only died, but he rose again. Uh, Paul says in Romans something to the effect of we are um, forgiven by his death, but we are saved by his life. The shed blood of Jesus washes us clean from sin, but his resurrected life allows us to be raised to newness of life, Romans chapter 6. Otherwise, we'd still be in our sins. And so we are raised up out of that through his resurrection. And then he says that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Uh, I said earlier that this is a literary masterpiece and Dr. Luke seems to really have found his voice here. He uses some great uh, descriptions. He says that some were persuaded, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Uh, he was also careful to point out that... Um, Jewish men believed, that devout Greeks believed, and he also points out that women believed. It was important for him to include women in the number of those who believed Paul. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, uh, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So uh, Paul uh, and Silas, they sought refuge in, in a believer's house, in a brother's house, the house of Jason. And they figured out where Paul was staying, and they showed up at his front door, the front door of Jason, and they sought to bring Paul and Silas out to the crowd, but they couldn't find them, and so they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities. And look what they shouted. They shouted, these men have turned the world upside down. And they have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. How? By saying that there is another king and his name is Jesus. Fascinating. When Luke uses this phrase, turned the world upside down, he is, again, not using hyperbole. He's not exaggerating to make a point. These few Christians turned the world upside down. In fact, one of the proofs for the resurrection of Christ and Christianity itself, and I mentioned this on Easter Sunday, is that Christianity is the only explanation for what happened to the first century Roman Empire. There was no reason for that empire to fall at that time. It was still going very strong. I mean, it had its issues, don't get me wrong, uh, but it was still going strong. But Christianity disrupted all of it. It turned it all upside down. From the moment... Uh, the followers of Christ came on the scene back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and that mighty rushing wind and all those people that were celebrating Pentecost in Jerusalem that day went back to their hometowns, 
with the news that something happened, ever since that day, the world was turned upside down. And it's still turned upside down wherever people will preach that Jesus is king. Verse 8, and the people of the city and the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. I keep saying it, we, we're studying through the book of Acts because we want to relive it, and we are reliving it, and I can promise you that wherever we speak the name of Jesus, those in authority are going to be disturbed by it. But we do it anyway. We take our cues from these first century apostles. If they did it, we could and should do it too. And then verse 9, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They got out on bail. Paul in Thessalonica, or he's in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. There are some converts, but opposition forces him to leave. And did Paul run scared? No. But he knew that his work there was done. Paul teaches us in the previous chapter, when we don't know where to go, don't go anywhere until you hear the word of the Lord. And he teaches us here by his example that sometimes after we've done all we can do and said all we can say, that we need to leave. And that can apply to our lives in a number of different ways. Sometimes we've done all we can for someone to help them. And eventually we have to say, I'm going to have to move on to somebody else. Uh, and, and Paul stayed for no more than a month with these people. And there was enough opposition where he decided, you know what? I'm going to have to leave. Now, Paul writes this church two letters. And, you know, we can... And you can read those another time, the powerful letters. The, the converts in Thessalonica were some of the strongest converts that, that Paul made. But there was such opposition that in order for him to, continuing, to continue ministering to other people, he knew, I have to sever the ties right now and move on. So let's read verses 10 to 14. Uh, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went again into the Jewish synagogues. That was his custom. It was his springboard into the city. He went to this place where he was likely to be received because he was a rabbi. He was uh, given an opportunity to speak, and so he took that opportunity. Uh, verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those who were in Thessalonica. Um, now, those in Thessalonica, they, they heard what Paul said, and verse 4 says, some were persuaded, but it sounds like those who were in Berea were more persuadable, and there's a reason why. They were students of the word. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, and then what did they do? They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They took their discipleship, in a sense, upon themselves. They took it seriously. Um, Paul shows up with something that they're quite unfamiliar with. I'm sure Paul preached the same thing 
to them that he preached in every other synagogue. And, you know, just by way of reminder, he said in the Thessalonica synagogue that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to be raised from the dead and Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Well, these Bereans, they received that word with eagerness, but then they went to the text and they studied them, they examined them to see if it were so. And many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So here again, Dr. Luke is sure to include uh, female converts, that women have equal standing in the church of God. And so he's sure to list them here. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, look what they did. They came there too. They weren't satisfied that they got Paul and Silas out of their city. They wanted Paul and Silas shut down. They wanted them silenced. And so they went down from Thessalonica. Uh, where are we here? Oh yeah, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the, uh, the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul goes to Berea where he has a better reception and many believe and yet uh, his dissenters, his detractors, they follow him there and they, they want to silence his message. And why is that? Why couldn't they just let Paul and Silas and Timothy, you know, preach their message and, you know, if people wanted to believe and accept it as truth, why didn't they just leave them alone? Well, I believe it's because they are being animated by the spiritual forces of darkness that are behind the gods that they worship. We talked about last week how Paul was going to take this gospel from a geographical region where there was really just one God. And remember, Paul went to all those Jewish villages and to predominantly Jewish areas. That's why he circumcised Timothy, for example. Now he's leaving this geographical area, this part of the earth where they have this understanding of one God, and he's going to a place where there are many, many gods, many gods that are being worshipped. Now these gods are nothing but images made by human hands, but they are animated by spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. They are not without their own power and influence. Not the statues or the monuments or the altars, but the spiritual forces of darkness behind them. And so I believe as 
they make their way into this land of the many gods to push out the worship of these many gods, they uh, experience pushback. They experience opposition to the point where the dissenters from Thessalonica go to Berea and stir up, um, they agitate the people, they stir up the crowds to get them out of there as well. But it has, it doesn't have the effect, the desired effect that they wanted because they actually end up not running back to where they came from, they run further in, they go right to Athens, which is the center of polytheism and the worship of the Greek pantheon of mythological gods. So it has the opposite effect. Paul doesn't run away. He actually runs deeper in, actually right to the very heart of it. He runs to Athens, or he ends up there. So verse 16 Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Whenever a believer is around false gods and false idols, it will provoke the spirit within us because the spirit in us is at war with those spirits. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against the spiritual forces of darkness. And so Paul's spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was full, literally full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So again, Paul is following his custom. He's going into the synagogue, he's using it as a springboard, and he's reasoning with the devout Jews, and then he goes from there out into the marketplace, and he speaks every day with those who happen to be there. And Dr. Luke is sure to include that some who were in the marketplace were Epicurean, and others were Stoic, but they were both philosophers. Uh, Epicurus, who the Epicurean philosophy is named after, he taught that the purpose of life was pleasure and to avoid pain at all cost. Um, That the only purpose in life is to indulge pleasure wherever you might find it. The Stoics, on the other hand, uh, were not so much opposite. Some Stoics were into self-deprivation, but by and large, Stoicism as a philosophy stressed living in harmony with nature and sort of worshiping the creation as God. And so in the marketplace in Athens, you had two schools of thought, two philosophies, the Epicurean and the Stoic. The Epicureans pursued pleasure. The Stoics pursued harmony with nature. And so Paul shows up with a completely different philosophy. In fact, it's not a philosophy at all. It's the wisdom of God, the gospel of God, which is contrary to every lofty idea raised against God. He shows up in the marketplace with this new 
idea. And some say, what does this babbler wish to say? So they're insulting Paul. I'm sure news of Paul had reached them. Maybe they knew a little bit about what happened in Thessalonica and Berea. And so they use this derogatory term, which means a peddler of assorted ideas. You see, they were very proud of their philosophy and they held tightly to their philosophy, their Epicureanism, their Stoicism. And so Paul shows up and they call him a babbler. Here comes this guy just peddling uh, assorted ideas. But Paul conversed with them. He talked to them. And uh, others said he uh, seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So here again, we're talking about foreign deities, unauthorized deities. So here in Athens, they're not so much concerned about the Caesar cult like some of the other Roman colonies would be. When they're talking about foreign deities, they're talking about deities that aren't in the pantheon of their mythology. And they say that Paul is preaching foreign deities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And that goes back to what I said earlier with Paul's preaching to Thessalonica. He preached that Christ had to suffer and die, but also be raised. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. And we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So they were open-minded. They were curious, at least. And so they bring... Paul to the Areopagus. I'm going to read the note in my study Bible. It says, the name means Mars Hill. This is a hill near the Acropolis where in ancient times a council had met. The council became the city council of Athens and in Roman times it was the court supervising morals, education, and religion. In Paul's time, the court meets in the royal portico in the marketplace below the Acropolis. Probably the purpose of Paul's hearing before the council is not only to satisfy its members' curiosity, but also to evaluate the strange ideas he was propagating. And so he's brought before this council. They're curious. What does he have to say? What do these things mean? And so verse 21, he begins. Or it begins to describe what he says. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. And of course, this is going on today. Um, it's not happening in a city square, but it's happening on social media platforms where people spend all their time telling and hearing some new idea, some new philosophy, some new ideology. Um, 
it's always been going on. There's nothing new under the sun. It takes on different forms. It takes on iterations. But it's always been happening, and it will continue to happen until the Lord returns. And so here, Paul is faced with something that we're all facing today. People who spend their time uh, telling and hearing of new things, new ideas, new philosophies. And so Paul says, all right, let me tell you the truth. And so in verse 22, he stands in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, men of Athens. He's going to give a formal um, message here. He's, he's going to give a speech. And so he starts off addressing the men of Athens, the noble men that were on this council and all who were gathered around to listen. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now what I'd like to do here is ask if somebody has another translation uh, and, and if you would be willing to just read out loud what Paul says, men of Athens, um, what does he say in your translation? I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, good. That's what I wanted to hear. He says, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. And I wanted to point that word out because sometimes we associate this word religion with Christianity or uh, the God of Israel. But Paul is pointing out that you are all too superstitious. You are all too wrapped up in pagan idol worship. Um, the problem for most people in coming to Christ is that they are too religious in some way. They're either too wrapped up in their self-righteousness, they're either too wrapped up in the uh, worship of some other god or some other idol. It's not that people think they're too bad to be saved most times, it's that people think they're too good to be saved most times. They have their thing, they have their ideology, they have their religion, the thing that makes them okay. In the world today, people have made themselves their own god and they're very uh, Epicurean, that all of life is about their happiness and their fulfillment and actualizing their dreams and manifesting it. And like I said, it was going on then, it's going on now. It might look and sound a little different, but it's the same thing. And so Paul right away confronts their religion, their superstition. He tells them, hey, you are worshiping something. There's, there's no neutral ground as humans. We're either worshiping God or, whether we know it or not, we're worshiping Satan. Unbelievers are followers of Satan. Now we wouldn't, they wouldn't call themselves that, but that's exactly what they are. They're worshiping at the altar of Satan. And What's wild to me is uh, um, more than ever before, like the worship of Satan and satanic images and things is so prevalent in the culture today. It's right in front of you. It's like they're not even hiding it anymore. It's not relegated to the shadows whatsoever. It's in mainstream culture. But I digress. He confronts their religion. And as 
preachers of the gospel, I think we would be wise to do the same when we, when we speak to others. Confront their religion, whether it's superstition or self-worship or some other form of religion. We're all religious in some way. Unbelievers are. The beautiful thing about Christians is that we've lost our religion. We've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, there is religious aspects to that in the sense that we practice certain rites and, and ordinances and whatnot, but we don't have a religion. Verse 23, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. So here he, he tells them, you're superstitious, and this is what you're worshiping. I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So altar implies practice and sacrifice in some way. So Paul confronts these men of Athens and tells them, you're altogether too superstitious, you're very religious, you're actually worshiping these other gods and offering sacrifices to them to the point where you're even offering sacrifices to what you call the unknown God. Now there's a couple of reasons why it's believed they had this altar to the unknown God. The first is because they were believed to be so open-minded that if somebody came from a foreign land that worshipped some other God that wasn't represented uh, by all of the idols and altars that they had in the city, and they were offended that they didn't have an altar to their God, that the Athenians could say, well, here, here's your altar. You can worship your God here at this altar. The other option that is often given as to why they had this altar to an unknown God is because they were very superstitious and they wanted to make sure that they were worshiping every possible God. So not that they were happy with the gods they were worshiping and trying to accommodate somebody else that had a different God, but that they wanted to make sure they were appeasing every God because of their superstition. Either way, they had this idol to an unknown God and on purpose because Paul by the direction of the Holy Spirit, shows up to this land of the many gods to tell them about the one true God. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it. If you're going to believe in the right God, you have to believe that he's the creator of the world and everything in it. Because God Almighty is the creator of heaven and earth. And so he, he confronts all of their creation myths and all of their legends by saying that this God, capital G, is the one who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord, the master of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath 
and everything. So not only is God the creator of all things, of heaven and earth, he also doesn't live in a temple made by hands. In fact, man is living in what God has created. God does not live in what man has created, which is what all that polytheism and the pantheon of those mythological gods, uh, that's what they did. They dwelled in certain places and uh, in certain idols and in, at certain altars. And so Paul says the God of the world or the God who made the world doesn't live in temples made by man and he's not served by human hands that he should need anything. God does not need to be appeased by us. Rather, God is the one who gives. God is the one who satisfies us because of his love. He gives life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live and on all the face of the earth. Look what else he says. And he determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And I think this uh, goes back to I'm going to go from memory here. I think this goes back to the sons of Noah and um, God giving them specific places to go and to dwell and from them all the nations of the earth uh, proceed. And so he says, God determined where people will live and for how long they will live, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I love that word, perhaps. Uh, elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us that there is none righteous. No one does good, not even one. Uh, in Psalm 58, 3, it says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And so Paul is referring here to the depravity, the total depravity of all mankind. And he uses the word, perhaps they will feel their way towards them. Uh, this goes back to, um, I think it's the words of Isaiah when he said, those who uh, have been groping in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, this word, feeling their way towards him, means groping in darkness. Man is always looking for higher purpose. You've heard it said we have a God-shaped vacuum, a God-shaped hole in each of us that can only be filled by God himself. Man created in the image of man, or sorry, man created in the image of God, uh, seeks his creator. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. So man, Paul says, is going all over the place trying to find God. But actually he's close by. And Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. If you're alive and you can move and you have a being, God is right next to you because those are gifts from God. And he quotes one of their poets. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Don't confuse the word offspring here with children. Not every human being is a child of God. Every human creature is a creation of God, is a creature of God, is created in God's image, but every human being is also born in the image of Adam. 
created in the image of God, born in the image of Adam, born with a sin nature, born separated from God. All humans are God's offspring, but only those who receive Christ can be called sons and daughters of God. To as many as received him, he gave what? The power to be called sons and daughters of God. In order to be a child of God, you need a certain power, and that is the resurrection power of Christ, washed in his blood and raised to newness of life by his resurrection. We share in his death, we share in his resurrection. Verse 29, for then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art or imagination of man. No, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now this sounds a lot like Paul's epistle to the Romans, particularly chapter one, where Paul talks about the natural realm displaying the invisible attributes of God and that God has appointed a day for judgment and God overlooked the trespasses of those who came before until the time comes for him to righteously judge the world. In verse 31, it says, because he has appointed uh, where are we? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising that one from the dead. So again, Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the notes. We'll read through and then we'll read the last paragraph together. And if there's any thoughts or comments, we'll have those. So in the handout, Paul proceeds to Athens. We're just recapping what we read. The land of many gods. He left Paul and Silas in Berea. He observes the idolatry of Athens. He disputes with the Jews in the synagogues and the philosophers in the marketplace and gives a public hearing on Mars Hill. Paul, Paul's address is a masterpiece adjusted to his audience. Um... Paul's point of conduct is the altar to the unknown, or sorry, point of contact is the altar to the unknown God. He presents the true God as creator and as redeemer. And he asks men to turn to him. Here in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. I... Uh, always wear a necklace. I just bought a cross pendant. I love the symbol of the cross. It's a beautiful symbol. It's a simple symbol. It's very recognizable. By and large, it's a symbol that people will respect, especially if it means something to you. I mean, the sign of the cross is certainly an offense when it's accompanied by the preaching of the gospel that tells everyone that they're, that they're sinners and that they've offended God. But by and large, the symbol of the cross is respected. What's not as respected and what is usually a point of mockery for us is when we talk about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, and then our own resurrection. Uh, it's usually 
um, something that causes people to say, hmm, I, I like what you had to say up until that, but mm, resurrection of the dead, that seems crazy. And so here, again, Paul, in preaching about a suffering Savior, is sure to mention the resurrection of the dead, and that preaching of the resurrection causes some to mock, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out of their midst. Some men joined him and believed. Among those were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. When Paul uh, sheds light on that which was previously unknown to the Athenians, it created a responsibility, and that responsibility was a choice to either accept or reject the message. We read in verse 32 that some mocked Paul. They rejected his message, but yet, and then others said, we'll hear you again, and others said, I believe, and they believed. We don't know how many. Uh, Luke doesn't use the same language that he used in previous paragraphs when he says not a few gave their heart and many were added. Here he says among them, uh, sorry, in verse 34, some men believed among them. He names one man and one woman and he said others with them. Some think that Paul's message in Athens was a failure, that uh, he didn't get the response that he had been getting to his preaching in, in previous cities. But I believe the opposite is true. Paul is here in the center of pagan superstition and idol worship. And he's preaching a powerful gospel to them. A bold gospel. Something that's not easy to do. Not easy to preach what Paul preached, where he preached it. And yet he still had converts. And so he's going to go from this center of um, idol worship, pagan idol worship. He's going to go from that city and he's going to head over to Corinth, which is, uh, like I said the Sodom and Gomorrah of its time and the Las Vegas of our time. He's going to go over to Sin City. So he's leaving a religious city and he's going to go over now to a sinful city and preach this same gospel.